Glorious God, holy God, you are sovereign and supreme. We stand before you in all our weakness and failure. We have nothing, nothing at all to offer except a come from you first. Search and cleanse us of all sin and self-sufficiency. Make us pure and holy like you are. We ask that you would fill us with your Spirit and that you would enlighten us and conform us and empower us for your glory. Lord, we know too well, too intimately, the heartaches of this fallen world. We cannot imagine the grief that you sense and know for all creation. Yet we are thankful, we are grateful for your great gospel. We stand and acknowledge the hope and blessing and assurance that we have today because of your gospel. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith that we might see that which is unseen. Fill us with trust and joy, no matter the circumstances in which we find ourselves. We pray that your grace would abound in each heart this morning, that you would fill us with love for you, for each other, and for all people. Make us faithful. Make us fruitful as your witnesses in this world. Convict us of sin. Convince us of your forgiveness. Conform us to Christ's image. I pray that in these moments, your will be done. That when we leave this place in a few moments, we might be different because we have encountered the living God. Do it, Father, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing our journey through the Psalms. <clears throat> this morning in, fourth, in the fourth Psalm, I want to ask you a question as we begin. Thinking about this society in which we live, how does society, how does our world measure life? How does it value life? If you think about that lately, we should think about it regularly. What does society, what does our world place priorities upon? It prioritizes possessions, positions, power and influence, experiences, and happiness. We hear those things bantered about a lot. But do these things offer true satisfaction, lasting satisfaction? I appreciated Michael's prayer earlier, talking about the Lord's ability to sustain, that He sustains all things, and nothing that this world has to offer is sustainable. God's kingdom values and prioritizes something different. We've been singing about it this morning. We've been talking about it already. What is it? It's joy. God's kingdom values joy. 
Listen to what His Word says. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Romans 14 and 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As we're continuing through this brief pilgrimage in the Psalms, this third Psalm, preceding the one we're in today, David wrote as he was fleeing or in response to his encounter with his own son, Absalom. Absalom was leading a mutiny against David's rule and reign. He wanted to overthrow. And so Psalm 3, David is engaged in that thinking, that process, that conflict in his life. And most Bible scholars believe that the fourth Psalm is a continuation of that. So you get a little bit of the context, a little bit of the background, where David is at, what he's dealing with. Our society is tense, stressful, and toxic in many ways. Almost everywhere you turn. Don't you get weary of it? (laughs) I know I do. It seems like it's worse than it's ever been. I don't know that that's true. I haven't been here all that long, in spite of what some believe. This psalm offers us help for the troubled soul. It gives God's instruction to navigate a stressful, distressful time in a healthy way. Suffering. I think it's always helpful for us as Christians to think about it. I know people don't like to talk about it, but it's a reality, is it not? I mean, it is the essence. It is the most common denominator, it seems like, in our world today. Suffering, difficulty, heartache conflict, that toxic spirit that reigns and rules in this fallen world. God's Word teaches us over and over again that this is not something that is the exception in the world in which we live, a fallen world, a broken world, but it is the norm. And He teaches us in His Word that suffering crucifixion comes before what resurrection redemption glorification this prayer this psalm is a prayerful psalm as many of them are it is a cry from david's heart a hurting soul who is desperate Desperate for God to intervene. Desperate for God to bring something to bear upon his heart more than what's evident in the world. So let's look at exactly what he says in this psalm. First of all, we see right out of his mouth that this is an urgent petition. It's an urgent petition. Verse 1, David offers four specific petitions here in this verse. Notice what he says, Answer me when I call. Give me relief in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
Now, with these four specific petitions stacked on top of one another, the one thing that we can take away from this is that David feels an urgency here. He is desperate. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief, and give me relief again when I am in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Answer me when I call. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand or respond, but just think about this. You know this has happened in your life. I remember as a kid, right? When you were in those uh, teenage years, when you were a little bit uh, smart-alecky, thought you knew everything there was to know, and your mom was talking to you, your mom was, was uh, asking you a question, and you just ignored her. You had one of those conversations. You didn't want to answer it. You didn't like the question. You didn't like the answer you were going to have to give. So you just ignored it. And what did she say? Hey, answer me when I'm talking to you. Right? You had one of those? Some of you guys had that same conversation with your wife this week. You tried to play that you know, selective hearing thing, and you got called on it. I see that hand back there. God bless you, my brother. Uh, we'd be praying for Kyle this week. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to out you like that. <laughs> well, that conversation is not what David's having here. This is not a demand coming from David. This is a plea. This is a, a point of desperation. It's not a smart aleck saying, Answer me, God, when I ask you a question. Oh, he's pleading. God, I need you. I need your answers. I need you moving and working in my life. I need to hear from you. Please answer me. O God of my righteousness, He is a just and holy God who always does what is right. He can be trusted in everything. This is our hardest adjustment. It's my hardest adjustment living in this world, is believing that God always does what is right. I believe, I think I've shared this with you, I believe that God controls everything, that He is absolutely sovereign. There's nothing, there's not one stray molecule out there running, leading a rebellion, that God is in control. And if I believe that, and I believe He is all-powerful, which I also believe, then that means that everything that comes across my path today, God has sanctioned for me. Now, the Scripture says that all things work together for good for those that love Him and are called according to His purposes. Not that they're all individually good, but that they're all working for good. Listen, I can look back, you can look back, particularly over the recent months in our lives, in our culture, and begin to wonder, God, I don't get this. You tell me, and I believe it's true, you're in charge, and all things work together for good for those that love you and are called according to your purposes, and yet it feels so unloving right now. It feels so stressful and difficult right now. It feels so hopeless and defeating right now. What is going on? David says, answer me, Father, because you're a good and righteous and kind God. 
I know this. In spite of what it feels like, I know this. You have given me relief when I was in distress. You have broadened the space when I was in a tight corner. A few years ago, Karen and I were on an airplane. It was a modest trip. I have a love-hate relationship with airplanes. I'm not scared of flying. I'm just a little bit claustrophobic in those little cylindrical cans, and I always have the smallest seat in the plane. And one thing I've noticed is that once I get airborne, even if I get the aisle, which I usually work hard to get, if I get the aisle, then the stewardess or the steward bringing the cart down the, down the aisle, you know, to serve drinks, always parks beside me and stays there for like an hour. <laughs> always. You know, it's like I have a number tattooed on me. So we were on this plane coming back. It was in the winter, so it was cold. I had on layers of clothing and things of that nature. So I'm sitting in a comfortable chair. Everything was great as long as we're on the ground. When we got into the air, all these things began to coalesce together. The heat went up in the cabin. The attendant came down the aisle with her cart and parked right next to me. And then she was constantly leaning against me and on me. And over me, and I wanted to go, get off me. Give me some space. Can't you see? I can't breathe right now. I, you put me in a straitjacket. She was there forever. Finally, she moved, and when she did, I came out of there like a jack in the box. Off came the sweater. And I made my way to the front of the plane. Karen said, where are you going? I said, I've got to, get, I've got to do something. Maybe she thought I was getting ready to get off. <laughs> but I went to the front. I went, through, I went through the first class section. It was a small plane, so it was a small section. And there was an attendant up there in the galley. As I approached, she looked at me, and you could tell... Thoughts were going through her mind. What's getting ready to happen here? I'm sure I had a wild look in my face, right? She said, sir, can I help you? You need the restroom? I said, no, I just need some space. She said, took me by the arm and said, come over here and stand under this vent. And she cranked the vent where it felt like there was just air pouring out on top of me. And she said, stand right here and stay here as long as you want. And if I can help you with anything, you let me know. Well, she took the temperature and everything down very quickly, didn't she? If she'd have said, sir, you got to return to your seat, I'd probably be in jail today. (laughs) But she broadened the spaces for me in that moment when I was feeling cornered and trapped and tight and couldn't breathe. I was suffocating. And she took that and broadened it and David is looking at the Lord and saying Lord culture society life in general has me under distress it has pushed me into a corner and I can't take it you've done this before broaden the spaces give me the relief once again what you've done in the past 
Be gracious. Be merciful to me. God is kind. We always think, we, def- we always default. We church people even. The lost community does this, and we church people do this. We default to God's justice and judgment and punitive nature, don't we? Well, we deserve it. We're, it's part of our guilty conscience. But when do we default to God's kindness and God's goodness and God's faithfulness and His steadfast love that endures forever? That's where David's going here. Be gracious. You're a gracious God. Be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. Yes, I deserve judgment. Yet I can with confidence ask for grace and mercy because He's a good and gracious God. In fact, He prefers it over judgment. Hear my prayer. Oh God, please hear my cries. I have no other recourse. I have no other option. I'm doomed without Your grace. I am doomed without Your mercy and Your compassion and Your care. The world won't give it to me. Life will not give it to me. Only you can, and only you will. So it's an urgent petition that David offers here. And then he gives us an important message delivered to his enemies. This important message generally says, Stop sinning and trust the Lord. The people who were being used by the enemy to bring about this distress in his life. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? In other words, you who think yourselves to be mighty and wise and great, who regard yourselves as model superior men, let me ask you, how long, how long will you turn my glory into shame. In other words, how long will you blaspheme God, who is my glory? How long will you esteem or speak of Him, who is my highest honor, as though you would make me ashamed of Him? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And then he gives seven specific instructions here. To the enemies, to his enemies. Notice what he says. First of all, he gives them something they should know. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The enemies have loved vain words and pursued lies. They are not godly. They are, not, they are ungodly. They are not set apart for the Lord. They are opposed to the Lord. And they are marked for judgment. David is including himself in the group called godly. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. David says, I'm a part of this group. The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord will hear and respond to my petitions. But he's not answering or listening to you, O enemies. He says, be angry and do not sin. Specific point two and three. Be angry, do not sin. We automatically think, I automatically think of Ephesians chapter 4 here. 
Listen to what Paul writes to the Ephesians. Verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What's David saying? David's saying, be angry if you please, but do not go so far as to let it be sinful. Do not let it lead you to a path of sin. Feel or express a righteous, reasonable displeasure at wickedness if you will, but do it without malice toward anyone. A good rendering here in the Hebrew is stand in awe and sin not. It's a call to sobriety, a call to seriousness, a call to reflection, to reverence and repentance. Be angry at what deserves anger. But do not take out that anger on someone who is made in the image of God. Examine your own hearts in private. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. I love this statement. I love this statement. What's he saying? He says, be still and reflect upon what is really at work in you. Why are you feeling this way? Why are you angry? Why are you lashing out? Why do you experience and feel malice at this point in time? See, we naturally and quickly jumped to putting it upon someone else don't we it's your fault that I feel this way you've caused this you've created this in me you've made me uncomfortable and what he's implying here is that that anger is actually rooted here talk this through with yourself before vocalizing it to others Well, that's just un-American, isn't it? First thing you do is get on social media and put it out there for everybody to see. I'm angry, and I want the world to know it, and you all better get out of my way. Or we run to whomever we're going to, sending those text messages, and tell them just how upset we are and our interpretation on the events when our interpretation may not be on the same planet with what actually happened. I would that God would blow up our technology. It'd keep a lot of you from sinning in your hearts. You think nobody's paying any attention, or you think that the, if you've thought it in your mind that the world is entitled to your public discourse. I got news for you. 99.9999999% of the people could care less what you think or want. Own it. Let it go. 
The only opinion that counts in anything is the Creator God. What does He think? What does He want? How does He feel about things? That ought to be what's foremost in a Christian's mindset. Examine your own hearts in private. Why are you feeling angry? The objective here is to bring calm, serious reflection, silent reflection to bear. It should lead us to a contrite and repentant spirit, and the anger should dissipate. He says, be silent. Silence is hard, isn't it? Do you find it hard to be silent? (laughs) We're programmed and trained not to be silent, right? I mean, I'm the smartest man in the room. Everybody should know and want to know what I have to think. If we only knew how untrue that is and how that is a lie straight out of the enemy's mouth. Most of us want to avoid silence in today's world. We fill it up with noise, with commotion, with chatter, with our own words. Yet Scripture encourages us to reflect, to meditate, to ponder, and to do so quietly. He who would enjoy and profit by public worship must not neglect meditation and prayer and self-examination. Not critical analysis. Look in the mirror and do some self-examination. Then you're ready for worship. He who loves and practices these things will be ready for all acts of public worship. He who loves and practices these things will be properly prepared for offering right sacrifices, he says. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. This is not referring to a ceremonial sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. What is he talking about? Well, let's think about what the Word of God says about sacrifice. Hosea 6.6 says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51.16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices of God, the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Right sacrifice is putting away our own preferences, putting away our own pride, putting away our own glory in order to take up the desires, the expectations, the wants of God. We surrender our hearts and minds to what the Lord deems best. We surrender to His providence, all matters, and we celebrate His provision. This is David's message to the enemies. But then notice in verses 6, 7, and 8, we see incompatible pursuits. Incompatible pursuits. There's two paths here. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Who will show us some good? What's he saying here? 
What's he writing? Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who think they're entitled to the Lord's goodness. Entitled to the Lord's blessing. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Show us some prosperity, God. Give us prosperity. We deserve this. That's about as an American attitude as you can find in Scripture. Many feel entitled to God's blessing. I've run across this most prominently in weddings through the years as a pastor. On many occasions, I've had two people come into me and say, you know, we'd like to get married, we'd like to you know, plan this wedding and do all these things. And my, usually my first question is, okay, why do you want to have a wedding? Why do you want to get married? Those kind of things. And particularly, occasionally, as I'm beginning to work through this with a couple, you know, they're... I've got to be careful here. They're not always the sharpest tools in the shop. They're young, they're young and naive, and they'll usually let the cat out of the bag real quickly that maybe they're living together. Maybe they've been living together for a while. And I'll say... <clears throat> Okay, tell me again why you're coming to me to marry you. And we know what they'll say. Well, we want to have a church wedding. We want God's blessing upon our wedding, our marriage. And I say, well, good luck with that. See, you're not, you're not following God's prescription for marriage in the way you're conducting your lives at this point. What makes you think you're entitled to any blessing that He might offer? They don't like to hear that. Now, I'm not saying that God's not a God who forgives. He absolutely forgives, and I'll work with you toward that. We can put you in a position where you can pray and, with good conscience, ask for God's blessing. But most of the time, pride won't let them. No, we can have our sin and God's blessing at the same time. Show me. Anywhere where that's happened. Show me. It doesn't work that way. There may be a season where judgment is put on hold. But it's coming. But it's coming. When trouble strikes, we're quick to ask for prayer. Right? Did you hear it? Was it two weeks ago? Ida's gathering force down there, getting ready to descend upon the Gulf Coast of our nation. And, you know, we need to pray for New Orleans. We need to pray for Louisiana. We need to pray for all those people in Ida's path. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. But let me ask you something. The sun's shining bright today. It's warm out here. Where are those people asking for prayer two weeks ago today? Where? Going on with life. God's a distant thought in the back of their mind if He's even that. I don't think God plays this game. When times are good, we presume upon God's goodness. When times are bad or we're under threat, then we want to call out to Him and expect Him to do something for us. God's blessings are very often conditional in Scripture. 
These enemies want God's blessings, His prosperity. Give us a good harvest. Give us much wine and grain. We need this. We want this. We deserve this. This is the anthem of our narcissistic world. In contrast, notice what David says. <laughs> he shows us a much different attitude. Give me more joy in my heart. He doesn't ask for his circumstances to change. He says, give me more joy in my heart. Give me more joy in my heart than those who get the prosperity they're begging for. When the harvest comes in, they celebrate and rejoice and kick up their heels. He says, give me more joy than they know in those moments. The world values possessions, positions, experiences, influence, or power and happiness. God values joy. Jesus said, in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you. These things I've spoken to you. He just came off that gathering with the disciples before his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And he's talking to them about, you know, being vine, him being the vine and them being the branches and being abiding in him. And he's talking through this that this is the way that you are fruitful for God. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Oswald Chambers, a Scottish preacher, wrote, My utmost for his highest. And his devotion on August 31st, this is what he said. He's talking about this joy. My joy, His joy. What was the joy that Jesus had, he asked. Joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with Him. The joy of Jesus was His absolute self-surrender and self-sacrifice to His Father. The joy of doing that which the Father sent Him to do. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross? Hebrews 12, 2. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Jesus prayed that our joy might continue fulfilling itself until it becomes the same joy as His. Have I allowed Jesus Christ to introduce His joy to me? Living a full and overflowing life does not rest in bodily health and circumstances, nor even in seeing God's work succeed, but in the perfect understanding of God and in the same fellowship and oneness with Him that Jesus Himself enjoyed. But the first thing that will hinder this joy is the subtle irritability caused by giving too much thought to our circumstances. Jesus said the cares of this world choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And before we even realize what has happened, we are caught up in our cares. David had more enemies than he could shake a stick at, including within his own household within his own family. And yet, he trusts God to deal with that, and he says, you have put more joy in my heart. Give me more joy than when they have their grain and wine abound. They may celebrate in great fashion, but 
In Christ, there is joy that exceeds their happiness always. And he says in this joy, I will know peace to lie down and sleep. In his joy, there is rest. In his joy, there is security and there is safety. There is assurance. There's a calm. There's satisfaction. Contentment. In Him. In Him. Not in anything this world affords. Listen, I know how hard it is to get there. I know how hard it is to rest only in Christ. Even us Christians. Even me as a pastor. I want Christ, but then I want other things too. But slowly, 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 God takes all the things away. He takes everything away. And then all you've got left is Christ. Is He enough? Is He enough? David says He is. David says He is. Christ Himself told us He is. But do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we rest in that? I pray that we pray for each other, that you pray for me and I pray for you, that we indeed will believe that and that we will find our rest in only Him. In only Him. Father, we thank You for your grace and your mercy. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways, your thoughts greater than our thoughts. I'm grateful for the testimonies that you have seen fit to reveal through your word for us to be encouraged. How you've worked in the hearts of people before us. I pray that your spirit might encourage and challenge us that no matter what circumstances may say around us, that we find our peace and security and rest and joy in you. Make it so. Lord, give us, give us that path forward that is, that is centered and focused in joy, not in the things the world says are important, but in what you give. Lord, I pray that in this moment, that you have your hand upon each heart and that you are accomplishing your, your purposes in each of us in this moment. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.